0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: It seems to me that my days as head of Grand Star are coming to an end. And you expect me to sympathize? No, hardly. I just thought perhaps that we together could bring hope to our people. You're in trouble. Seriously, Rag. I'm talking about our future. What do you have in mind? Well, I thought we could go on an expedition and dig. You must know where to dig. Dig? There must be thousands and thousands of places that have gone untapped. I have been digging, as you put it, all my life. I have dug so many holes so deep you wouldn't imagine. And you know what I found at the bottom? What? Nothing. The solution is not below us. It's above. What are you talking about? I'm talking about the sun, Palador. The sun! There's a tales. The tale, subversive tales from an ancient world. You've been telling lies so long, you believe it yourself. Nonsense. Everyone depended on you for heat, and so you kept it that way. Nonsense. We could have developed technology. We could have developed methods to bring it back. But no, you prevented it. There is nothing up there. It's just your pointsman ideology. How dare you! It was pointsman ideology that you despise so much that kept you and everyone like you alive. It kept everyone in the dark. You've any idea? any idea how difficult it was to keep Grand Star prosperous and united no no because you were already obsessing with your stupid pathetic romantic dreams about blue skies and sunsets and rainbows well i hate blue skies and i hate sunsets and i hate rainbows and it looks as though i'm just gonna have to leave you here to rot for all eternity
2: Morning London. It is Thursday, June 18, 2015. I'm Bob Metz and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright Well, at least the pointsman in our opening drama from the British sci-fi series Grand Star, at least he admits he has an ideology. He was clearly willing to defend it to the death, his own included. A pointsman's ideology that was, unfortunately for the residents of Grand Star, the wrong ideology, and the one that actually led them into their energy crisis. But most political activists and politicians today want to avoid being labeled ideological, and in so doing, I think they perform a great disservice to the public who's expected to vote for them. That'll be the overriding theme of the show as we move on in the hour, and in the process, I'll be commenting on the problem that voters and the public must face due to the use of what are essentially meaningless terms and words to either describe a given problem or to prescribe a given solution in politics. No wonder more and more people are tuning out of politics, even though it is the single most affecting force in their life. Uh, You know, what politicians do costs you more than all your other basic necessities combined, generally. During the course of this discussion, I'll be touching on everything from an ideological look at ideology's lack to the issue of Canada Post putting up super mailboxes, the city uh, strike, the upcoming teacher strike, and all ending up with a discussion about pragmatism and conservatism and newly elected progressive Conservative Party leader Patrick Brown. But first, I want to do a heads-up on and about our show itself. Doing the show on my own today, and Robert Vaughn has wanting, wants us to know he'll be taking a long-planned and anticipated sabbatical from the broadcast editions of Just Right Media somewhat of a working sabbatical, but we will return once he catches up with all of our backlogged Just Right media projects and many of his own personal ones And I'm sure he's eager to put behind him. I know there are many of you who'll miss Robert's regular input to the show, and although... We didn't really discuss a specific time frame for his expected absence. I would expect it to extend to the autumn, at least. Having said that, Robert did say he would nevertheless still co-host the odd show should the opportunity arise, and he also offered to give me a week or two off by hosting the show on those occasions should they arise. But here's the big news. There are some new developments that Robert and I hope to have in place by the time his sabbatical ends. Between now and then, Robert will continue maintaining his weekly postings of our broadcast show online, and I know he still has some online archiving projects on the go with respect to our older broadcasts of the show. You know, it's just Right Media, and not Just Right is the name we chose for our online presence recognizing that audio would not be our only form of online content, and I'll have more to say about that in a few moments. Now, of course, Robert has been the sole and only host of Just Right's video productions and interviews, and will, of course, be in Toronto next week to record the presentation to be made by Dr. Andrew Bernstein, who was our guest on the show last week. In addition to recording Dr. Bernstein's live speech to a live audience on behalf of the Freedom Party of Ontario and the Toronto Objectivist Committee, he'll be conducting a separate video interview with Dr. Bernstein for Just Right Media. No doubt you'll be hearing highlights from both of these talks on this show in upcoming weeks ahead. And I must point out that it's entirely thanks to Robert that we're able to now offer the complete options of writing us at feedback at org. You can visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, or subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. Now, while I have my own (coughs) narrow areas of technical expertise, well, i got to admit I'm practically online illiterate in so many ways. And then there's the issue of how much time we have available, which makes a division of labor necessary for expanding our reach. And without Robert's input, it's quite possible we wouldn't be able to offer a lot of these services, which Robert continues to maintain even during his sabbatical. You know, hard to believe, or maybe it's embarrassing to admit, that when the first two years plus of Just Right were aired, a period when I did host the show alone, solo, I was still on dial-up at home. (laughs) Just listening to audio online was a torturous, constant buffering experience that left it a rather tedious undertaking. And we didn't get around to posting any of our online archived copies of the show until about a year after we began broadcasting. Because, of course, we didn't really know at the time whether it would amount to anything, whether it would be worth the undertaking, or whether there would be enough content to draw an appreciable audience. But the content accumulated. So much so that Robert and I had often found it difficult to introduce a discussion of a new theme or subject that we haven't already discussed on a past broadcast. Though we both recognize there are some basic principles and themes that require repeating, at the same time we're both a little wary of repeating ourselves on non-essentials, just as we strictly avoid using any repeat audio bites on the show to our best of our ability. And now after 400 on-air broadcasts, which have all been archived online, we find that we've created a very valuable asset, both for ourselves and for you, our listeners, and other various audiences. Uh, audiences, It's become clear to us that the 400-plus broadcasts of Just Right have provided a highly unique and, for the most part, timeless set of audio recordings about subjects and issues delivered in a style I don't think you can find just about anywhere else. Although we've only been producing, on average, four shows a month, five if, we're, if there's five Thursdays, our website, justrightmedia.org, now receives steady traffic of some Over 5,000 unique visitors per month. Not a number that's anywhere near viral, but a respectable number, nevertheless. And it continues to grow with each passing year that we've done the show. Robert and I realize we've made a significant investment in our Just Right Media project. uh, An investment that has transmorgified into an asset, both for ourselves and for you, our listeners and fans. Now... In addition to Just Right audio and video, we are about to enter the third dimension, and that is print. Yes, Robert and I are planning a print edition of Just Right, presented in either newsletter format, specialty publication formats, and or both. That's a decision we'll have to mutually mutually arrive at over the coming months ahead. Now, our print editions of Just Right will feature and include, though not be limited to, the best of and significant highlights of the show over its history. Hopefully, we'll be able to capture the tone and flavor of our on-air broadcasts, incorporating humor and other features, not unlike our audio bites on the show, to frame our main discussions and topics and guests. Now, I know that... Robert has already started transcribing our interviews with Lord Christopher Monkton, for example, for our upcoming new project. And he has asked me to remind you, our listeners, to write us, to let us know if you'd like to receive notice of our print incarnation of the show when it becomes available. You can email us at feedback at justwritemedia.org and we'll put your name and contact info on our list to let you know when the products are complete and available. Stay tuned for future details on this, and with a bit of luck but no guarantees, we should have most of this up and running by the end of the summer. Another thing in pr- project, I mean we've got so many on the go that we're planning to do, is we'd like to repackage and resource many of our earlier shows uh, by their themes and topics in a way that might be more helpful to our audience than, you know, mechanical uh, index searches. Sometimes they don't bring up what you always expect. So we would like to create this, you know, online smorgasbord of philosophy delivered in a sugar-coated way, one bite at a time. (laughs) Everything from entertainment, including movie reviews and our various looks at television shows to politics, philosophy, science, technology, and a few subjects that I just can't categorize. We'll be representing these past broadcasts in a way that'll make them fresh and a new experience for online audio enjoyment. And then, of course, there are the many guests that we've featured over the years, many who have appeared more than once, including Tom Harris, energy critic, Jim Chapman, who we started with left, right, and center way back when, Andrew Lawton, Ezra Levant, Kevin Godet of the Taxpayers Federation, National Post writer and editorialist Barbara Kay, Prince of Pot, Mark Emery, New York Times bestselling author Anne Coulter, Journalist, author, and columnist Rory Leishman when he was at the Free Press. John Thompson, expert on terrorism. Lawrence Solomon of the National Post and executive director of Energy Probe. Lord Christopher Monckton, who in addition to being a journalist, public speaker, mathematician, and inventor of Sudoku puzzles also was among former U.K. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's inside advisors. We'll hear more from him a little later on. Former City Councillor Orlando Zampronia, Brian Lilly when he was with Sun TV, Dr. Yaron Brook, of course, of the Ayn Rand Institute, and on and on. I haven't even mentioned Salim Ansour, William Gardner, Bosch Faust, and Andrew Bernstein, Christine Williams, Christopher Essex. I mean, I could sit here for, for the better part of this half hour just listing the guests. You can see the entire list of guests who have appeared on Just Right by clicking on the Guests link at the top of our homepage at www.justrightmedia.org. And, you know, in many ways, I have no discomfort about saying that Just Right Media has become something greater than the sum of its parts and its participants, myself included. That even applies to individual broadcasts in many ways, but it's a phenomenon that becomes more visible when you look at the macro image of our entire series. So during this coming period of Robert's sabbatical, I expect to host the show solo most times, though I know that a number of shows will undoubtedly feature some of the other co-hosts who have appeared on the show in the past. Over these coming summer months, Robert and I will be performing a division of labor, and of leisure, I hope, hopefully to be able to squeeze a little of that ladder in. As always, we plan to keep the conversation moving in the right direction, towards the truth, not away from it. And as everyone knows, truth is in the philosophy department. And with that thought in mind, we now turn our attention to a 2009 discussion between Michael Korn and Lord Christopher Monckton, the latter having been our own in-studio guest right here at CHRW on March 15th, 2012, show 241, and which is available in video version online as well. And there are several other Monckton interviews and features videotaped for just right by Robert Vaughan available. Now, in this following exchange, Monckton ends with a very unambiguous and clear statement of his ideology, or mission applying it to the issue of climate change an issue that has become the driving motivation behind so many political agendas and uh, but his pot point was not so unlike that of just rights mission and ideology quote in the end truth alone is worthy of our entire devotion
3: Uh, When we have someone who really is informed, knows the staff um, and wants to speak intelligently in an informed manner about an alternative view of what is going on in terms of the science and climate change, I think we have to listen. Well, I certainly do, and I advise you, to as well. Lord Christopher Monckton, former uh, science advisor to Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, expert on this issue. They're frightened to take you on, generally, Al Gore. Will he debate you? He won't. We advertised right across America for months in all the major newspapers saying, come on, Al, baby, I'm waiting, (laughs) and he would not even give us an answer. They have learnt that the way to work things is to become a personality, and then when you've become a celeb, And a TV show rings up and says, will you debate with, say, Monkton, who isn't really a celeb, though thank you for helping to do your little bit towards that (laughs) worthy aim. Uh, Then they tend to say, well, no, we won't debate with him. And so they will only, therefore, go on if they're not challenged by anyone. And they can go on repeating the same mantra. I would say, however, that it is a very important principle that on issues of public policy there should be free speech and open debate Mm -hmm. and one of the most lamentable features of this debate is the unwillingness of what i call the bedwetters the the true believers in the new superstition that is global warming and which replaces religion for those who've never really had it now at last they've got something they can believe in and get passionate about Mm -hmm. in the absence of religion Um, they are very reluctant to debate because one is as it were challenging what is not based on reason it is purely a faith but it doesn't happen to be a decent religious faith it's just dopey but they therefore they're terrified of meeting somebody who knows the science knows the economics and can say sorry but the Emperor really has no clothes it doesn't matter how many scientists or bureaucrats or politicians you line up and they swear blind because it's profitable or congenial or expedient or it speaks to a political faction with which they align themselves that this is true in the end truth alone is worthy of our entire devotion and the global warming scare fundamentally is not true
4: good morning. Good morning, Bataille. Are you ready? The administrator's already arrived. Yes.
5: There you are, Bataille. Perhaps you can explain to me when crops are dying all over how
4: this tree is flourishing. Well, this tree is our symbol, our affirmation of life. Everyone in this town gives part of their water rations to keep it alive. We've learned, administrator that hope is a powerful weapon against anything, even drought. A good point. Perhaps I shall
5: recommend a symbolic tree in each of my communities. Now, what business do we have today?
4: Well, we need help if we're to increase the water supply. We think there are ways to reclaim some of our water. But I, you're being a bit of an alarmist.
5: True, we are in a drought, but water rationing has produced a sizable savings. The weather pattern doesn't change. Rationing will not be enough. We'll run out of water. Who is this? Cayman, sir. Cayman! Do I know you? No. I haven't spoken to you before. Well, Cayman, I'm open to all the people of this town. I'm delighted to hear what you have to say. I suggest that we build atmospheric condensers, which could extract water from the air. I don't mean to quash your very creative ideas, but building atmospheric condensers would be a monumental undertaking. We could not hope to sustain such a project. Each community will be responsible for its own. Condensers could make the difference between watering our crops and watching them die. Well, I'll be glad to pass along your idea. You'll see that this kind of participatory government works for everyone. Be well, Patai. I shall see you next month. Good to meet you, Canaan.
4: Go carefully, Administrator. That went very well. I think he was impressed with you. There'll be no atmospheric condensers. These things take time. But it will happen, I'm sure of it. Kamen, hearing you talk to the Administrator, I realized that for the first time in years, You were speaking as though you were truly a member of the community. It was good to hear that again.
2: Ah Yes, that old sense of community, and you'll notice that the word participatory democracy was used, and even though there was no vote that took place in that particular clip that we just heard, and no decision was actually made or arrived at, and yet they called it participatory democracy. Just to show you that that's one of the many terms that we listen to all the time that are floated around in the political discussions of the day that essentially don't mean much and don't solve any problems. And this has been my frustration this week, I, and, it's, and it's come over the last few weeks, you've probably heard me talking about it on the show, the meaningless of so many terms and debates that we have, which is why the whole political process doesn't move forward the way it should. I've been listening to the various open line radio talk shows around town, on and off over the past week or so. And it's simply amazing how passionate and emotional people were getting about a few issues that shouldn't even really be issues. Except for the fact that everybody refuses to identify the simple source of the problem, let alone to suggest a simple cure for the problem. I'm speaking of the current London, Ontario municipal inside worker strike, the recent and upcoming Ontario teacher strike, and the controversy surrounding Canada Post's placement of the so called super mailboxes. Again, another phrase used to call something what it isn't. It's neither super nor really a mailbox. My frustration and disappoint- disappointment upon hearing the level at which these issues were being discussed and debated. It kind of overwhelmed me to the point this week of not even bothering to participate, pardon upon, in the on-air conversations as I might otherwise be attempted to do, because I couldn't believe what I was hearing. The discussion about Canada Post's recent court victory against the city of Hamilton, which objected, as do many homeowners and residents, to the placing of the super mailboxes, boiled down to, uh, on one side, we don't need door-to-door delivery, or on the other side, you need the exercise. Get out there and walk down to your mailbox, you know. And then there were the people, particularly among the disabled and elderly, who strenuously objected to having to walk a distance to get their mail. And there were those who objected to having their property values lowered when Canada Post just arbitrarily picks their front lawn or corner to place one of these monstrosities on. Just unbelievable. Uh, You know, the callers calling in were actually angry with the other callers who disagreed with them. And not one caller on the show raised the real issue or the cause. We don't need super mailboxes. What we need to do is eliminate Canada Post's monopoly on snail mail delivery. That way, everybody can get what they want or not get what they don't want. you'd be shocked by how many competitors would flood into the market and offer door-to-door delivery quite probably at a fraction of the current cost, and all while making a profit. I felt sorry for a lot of the callers who were clearly stressed about losing their door-to-door delivery. And why? Because the taxpayer has to continue to support the government monopoly on the service, pay for the outrageous salaries, the pensions the Canada Post has committed to, And so we put ourselves in this box, we trap ourselves, and we can't get out and we complain about the consequences of putting ourselves in that box, when all we have to do is take that step out. It's the same mindless debate over the municipal strike and the various teacher strikes. The province operates under an education monopoly, under which, again, there is a labor monopoly which controls the pool of teachers that are actually teaching. Both of these monopolies need to be ended and competition must be allowed to rule. But, unfortunately, there's no political will to do this because all of the political will has been about creating and maintaining this grotesque, anti-capitalistic, anti-freedom, ideological, economic arrangement. You know, the purpose of government, at least a government that's committed to protecting life, liberty, and property, is above all to prohibit the initiation of coercion and physical fo- force, both in the, in the criminal sense and in the economic sense. That's why when we use the term free market, all we mean, and nothing more, we just mean that that market is free of coercion. But unions, labor and business monopolies, all represent the exact opposite of that. The government uses coercion and enforces monopolies like Hydro One and just about every other government quote-unquote service and labor monopolies for the public, you know, for the public so-called public servants. No one outside these monopolies is legally permitted to compete. And depending on whether these monopolies represent state control alone or or, uh, state control and ownership, we call these arrangements fascist or socialist. Now, these are words with clear meanings and clear, predictable consequences. And that, unfortunately, is why we won't hear them in the course of normal political discourse. And that's what I'll be talking about when we return after this break. we talk about how uh, everyone's avoiding trying to be labeled as being ideological, when in fact they are being purely ideological. And what we're having forced upon us with all these undesirable issues in politics— are simple ideologies. We'll be back.
6: Mother tells me you want to go into industry. That's right, Uncle. They're crying out for people, but well, it doesn't seem very easy to get in.
2: Hmm.
6: You understand, eh? I happen to be a director of quite an important engineering firm, Missiles. How would you like to join us? Oh, that'll be wonderful, Uncle. Well, of course it would, Stan. And this is the right time, too. Your uncle's firm's just about to land a big arms contract. Actually, it was Cox's idea that I should take you on. Oh, Thank you very much, Coxey. What would I have to do? Oh, I expect you'll just supervise, dear. After all, you were at Oxford. You know, the first thing, Stanley, is to apply to the local labour exchange. Labour exchange? That's right. I, uh, I did suggest to your uncle Bertie, Stanley, that you might perhaps go in on the other side. What other side? Become a worker. A worker. Unskilled, of course. Does Mr. Cox seriously suggest, Bertie, that Stanley should throw in his lot with the working classes? I'm perfectly serious. Uh, tell me, Stanley, on the management side, uh, what sort of money would you hope to start with? Oh, about eight pounds a week. Well, there you are, Lady Dorothy. I mean, if uh, if you were an unskilled worker, your union at see you never got as little as that. Yeah, what's more, as a proper worker, Stanley, you're, you're important. Politicians need your vote, so they fall over themselves trying to make you happy. Can you imagine our Stanley here, all muscles and sweat? Oh, no, 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 dear lady. You got hold of the wrong end of the conception. These days it's the management who does all the, uh, perspiring. <laughs> I mean, you take an up-to-date firm like Missiles. Your Uncle Bertie's giving himself ouses, trying to make them more efficient and telling the men it means a bigger wage packet. And you were the one who gets it, Stanley. I must say, it does sound attractive, Aunt Dolly couldn't bear the thought of you having to join one of those horrid unions. Well, I don't suppose one has to. I so hate violence. Nonsense, Mother. That sort of thing doesn't happen nowadays.
4: Jenny Colombo, Mr. Kermit Morgan of the State Department. How do you do, Lieutenant? Mr. Morgan is with the protocol department, Colombo. There's been a complaint lodged against you by the Swearian Legation.
0: A complaint of police harassment by First Secretary Hassan Salah. The feeling expressed to me is that you've been indulging in a personal vendetta. Well, there's no vendetta involved here? Just trying to catch a man who murdered two Syrian nationals along with robbing the legation of $600,000. Yes, I'm sure, but uh, you're working in delicate and apparently unfamiliar waters, Lieutenant. You can't push around diplomatic personnel the way you would common criminals into in the street. It, it is in the best interest of our government if there are no just... further contacts between
4: yourself and Secretary Salah. Well, that's all very well and good except for one thing. What is that, Lieutenant? He's the murderer.
0: You, you, you have definite proof
4: as to his guilt? Well, not exactly. son Salah has ironclad alibis for both murders. I know it looks that let way. Let me tell you something, Lieutenant.
0: It may go against your grain, but it's reality. Right from the State Department. And we don't care if Salah is guilty or innocent. We do care about our country's relations. Now, under the circumstances, let me suggest that... Let me strongly suggest that a letter of apology be drafted by Lieutenant Colombo and sent with all due speed to the Suarean legation. Even if he's guilty? Lieutenant, please understand we do not condone murder. But we're in the midst of difficult negotiations with the kingdom of Suarean. Your uh, speculative investigation could undo months of delicate negotiating. You understand. Uh, Yes, sir. We all have our job to do. So I'm going to write that letter.
4: And not only that, I am going to personally deliver this personal apology on behalf of myself and the department.
0: That's excellent. I like a man who espouses the pragmatic view,
4: Lieutenant. Thank you, Captain. Yes, sir. What did he say? Don't make waves.
2: According to that Colombo audio, bite being pragmatic means don't make waves. And maybe that's the impetus behind it. And although it seems paradoxical, you know, most politicians don't like to be seen making waves, even though they like to get attention. And I think that's just one of the reasons why they like to be seen as being what they call pragmatic. I, I heard this word being used, you know, putting people first, this term rather, putting people first instead of ideologies. Heard some new counselors talking about that or people running, I think it was Donna Kelly. But, you know, this is one of those meaningless political phrases you hear so often, used to hide usually the dubious intentions inherent in the philosophy of, quote, putting people first. You know, ideologies in the political and social realm, or shall we say in the people realm, are all about how people should live and should treat each other in a social context. That's what an ideology is uh, in in this context. To abandon ideology in favor of quote-unquote people is technically putting metaphysics before epistemology uh, and putting it in the field of epistemology where it doesn't belong. Or in other words, you're putting the cart before the horse. It's illogical on the face of it. Ideology is all about people. So, if you intend to abandon ideology in favor of quote-unquote people, or in other words, if you abandon any ideas of how people should govern themselves, then what does putting people first possibly mean? Who or what should be second? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, ideology, that's what's second. So apparently, in the course of putting people first, we're not supposed to think about where we're putting these people, or why, or what we're doing with them, <laughs> or, where, you know, or, or why, we put, why we don't put them first, um, or when we put them first, because all of those considerations are ideological, and, and that's second. The whole concept is so m- mentally deficient, it just does not compute. Ideology is not a bad word. There are, however, many bad ideologies, which grossly outnumber the few ideologies that work. And that's true in in life in so many ways. And that's why so many people, I think, when discussing just about anything nearing philosophy, will insist that they're not being ideological. What they're doing is really avoiding a debate. Politics is, in the end, a philosophical determination. And those who determine the direction of politics in our country keep insisting that they are not ideological. Why? In order to prevent being associated with bad or unpopular ideology, I would suspect. They don't want to rock the boat, even though they really want to tip it over <laughs> entirely. Now, here's an absolute truth. Whenever someone says they're not ideological, they're either lying to you, or they're hopelessly unfit to discuss the subject matter that's at stake. And we're talking in the field of politics here. It's like saying... I don't have an opinion on this issue, or worse, I'll let the people decide. You know, these are all ways of avoiding the reality that the person saying this does have an opinion and has no intentions of letting the people decide. This is sort of a kindergarten juvenile view of the democratic process. If you don't have an opinion, well, why did you run for office? Just to do what other people tell you to do? Based on the numbers alone? If that's the case, then voters don't even need politicians, do they? Which is why, given that we still have the right to vote, that politicians do not want to run on clear ideas or on clear platforms. And to avoid being discovered for who they are or what they stand for, politicians use what I've been describing lately on the show as floating adjectives, abstractions, you know, abstract words that mean nothing because there are no clear nouns or verbs attached to them or associated with them. These words and terms include, but are not limited to, left-wing, right-wing, liberal, conservative, democrat, new democrat, uh, progressive, pragmatic... And we've discussed a number of them in this context just a few broadcasts ago. I think another issue with ideological is that it's so often associated with harsh or extreme positions, when in fact you'll probably find more harsh or extreme positions being made by the so-called non-ideological. Bureaucrats, for example, are notoriously known for being non-ideological because in their role they cannot be. We're just following the rules, ma'am. You know That's what they'll tell you. They are the agents of the ideological. Their path is determined. The determined is not a field in which the choices exist. But in politics, politicians are not on a determined path, although they seem to like pretending that they are. Once elected, they get to make the big choices we as voters are always kept in the dark and generally surprised when we see what they come up with once in power. And that's because they won't tell us where they stand on the hard issues. If they did take a stand, then they believe that voters probably wouldn't vote for them. So let's investigate this phenomenon by way of a living example. Coming up next is a fascinating exchange between progressive conservative leadership contestants Patrick Brown, who won eventually, and Christine Elliott, who was expected to win, but lost. This exchange was aired on TVO's April 30th broadcast with host Steve Pakin. This is an edited and much shortened version, of course, of the original entire TVO broadcast, and I have focused what you're about to hear on those issues concerning ideology and political identity. Here we go.
7: Why are you a better choice than she is to lead this party right now? I think our party needs a reset. The gang that's been running our party for the last few elections, whether it's faith-based funding, 100,000 job cuts, it's been a top-down approach. I think we need a fresh start. I think we need to uh, look at the approach the federal party has taken, reaching out to new Canadians, reaching out to young people, reaching out to professional associations, being less confrontational with the broader public sector, being a a party of practical and pragmatic ideas. uh, and, and I can bring that fresh start. You know, the party establishment certainly isn't supporting me. I'm not going to owe them any favors, uh, and uh, frankly, I can actually bring real change to the party that we so desperately need. Why are you a better choice?
8: Well, I think it's really important that we show a new tone, and direction for our party, because after four successive election losses, people really aren't even tuning in to what we have to say. And I believe that I'm the right candidate, because I offer three things. One is, I have the experience outside of politics. We know we're going to inherit a dire economic situation after the next election or by 2018. And I have the experience both in practicing law and uh, working in the banking sector for a number of years to do that. But I also bring a a message that is resonating with people across the province, which is, We go back to our roots. We are fiscally responsible as Progressive Conservatives, but the reason is so that we can be socially compassionate. And that is resonating with people who voted for us last time, but also people who are looking for an alternative to the Liberals. But the third reason is, of course, I have a seat, and we don't have a lot of time to get ready for the next election. We need to hit the ground running. I have nine years of experience in provincial politics. I'm ready to get going May 11th. I'm building what I call the big blue tent and being inclusive and making sure that everyone that shares our progressive conservative values is welcome to join them. And I've been able to build that coalition where I've got the support of Premier Davis on the one hand, Mayor McCallion, Robin Doug Ford, uh, many of the majority of our MPPs, and several dozen MPs on my side.
2: Some people would say the Ford's endorsement is a double-edged
8: sword. Are you sure you want to be trumpeting that? I think it's really important that we don't draw distinctions between who we want to be members of the party. We're all progressive Conservatives, we all have a perspective, and we all need to make sure that we get together under that big blue tent because that's the only way we're going to win next time. And that's
2: key. Is Patrick Brown a progressive Conservative?
8: Uh, You'd have to ask Patrick. I'm going to Um, ask him, but I'm asking you first. I think that some of the uh, the things that Patrick has talked about um, lately are, n- are not what I would call progressive
7: conservative. Absolutely, I'm a proud progressive conservative. Uh, but I would uh, I'd say this: you know, there's some in our party right now who are saying the only way to beat the liberals is to mimic the liberals, to be liberal light. And I I can tell you, Steve, if you look at history, whenever we've tried to be liberal light, the voters always pick the authentic liberal. We can win as conservatives. We can win and have the courage. Of our convictions. But I
2: guess the the original question was is there a
7: progressive-ism to your progressive conservatism or is it just a label for you? No I'm proud to be a progressive conservative but obviously this leadership is a choice between a liberal light version of the party and those that believe that we can win as conservatives. You want to speak to this liberal light business?
8: I would totally disagree with that I think we are proud progressive Conservatives, and that's what people of Ontario, where they're sitting for the most part, they want to have a government that's fiscally responsible, of course, because you can't do anything else without that. But you also need to show that you're socially compassionate.
7: Approach to politics is just be pragmatic and what I dislike about the way the party used to be run they they said you have to fit in an ideological compartment what my what my basis is is if an idea makes friends for Ontario I don't care if it comes from an NDP from a liberal from a social conservative from a social libertarian if it makes sense for Ontario I'll support it there's no monopoly on good ideas and the way the party was run before I'll be honest the fact that we voted against the last budget announced we're going to vote against it without even reading it is insincere. I want us to be a party that says we will consider everything. There's no more ideological compartments because I think if you go out and spend time with families like I have around Ontario, you talk to regular voters, they will tell you. They don't care about your your political jersey. They don't care what what political persuasion you come from. The only thing they care about is how you're going to enhance their quality of life. How are you going to create jobs and make Ontario a destination for investment. And that's what I've been talking about around Ontario.
2: And there you have it, Patrick Brown telling us that when it comes to ideolo- ideology, it's going to be a complete brownout. My understanding is that after her loss to Patrick Brown for the leadership of the PCs, Christine Elliott has been nowhere to be seen. She's not communicated with Brown, and she has not even been seen occupying her seat in the legislature. But most interesting, not once during the entire Paken interview with Brown and Elliott, and I'm not talking just about our clips, but the whole thing, did the two elephants in the room, health care and education, get brought up outside of the sex ed curriculum issue? And I'm still not clear where either of them actually stood on that. Brown argued that his objection to Wynn's sex ed plans was all about the lack of parental input and public input that accompanied its introduction. Um, certainly nothing was said about the fundamental changes to the definition of consent that the Wynne government is trying to impose through this. And having just listened to what we just heard, for my part, I know nothing about where either Elliot or Brown stand on any issue. The entire conversation was a dance to evade any discussion of the real issues. Patrick Brown, for his part, talking about the party needing a reset, a fresh start, reaching out to new Canadians, I get the impression he's a good organizer. This is one area he seems to be, be good at, organizing people, getting people to sign up. That's how he took over the party. But he says he wants to see the party be a party of practical and pragmatic ideas. Well, if it's pragmatism that Ontario wants, it already has pragmatism in spades. The liberal pragmatism of the Kathleen Wynne government. They were so pragmatic. They never even told Ontario voters about their plans to sell Ontario Hydro or sell Hydro One, or to change the voting system and the election dates, or to introduce new definitions of consent through their sex head curriculum, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Obviously, Liberals pragmatically believed that these things were the best thing to do for Ontario. But of course, you and I, we only learn this in hindsight. And admits Brown, you know, he says, the party establishment certainly isn't supporting me. To me, (laughs) that raises an entirely different issue. If what you represent is so different from the established principles of the party you're running to lead, is that even ethical? You know? Don't get me wrong. In in, in one sense, the PC establishment was hoisted by its own petard, if, if what Brown says is so. Brown basically took over a party that was being supported by what he calls a party establishment. That party establishment was the group that made the investment in what the PCs were building, rightly or wrongly. And they just had all of their money and time and investment in their, in their party stolen from them. That's what happens when you have a big blue tent philosophy that let, lets anyone who can sell more last-minute memberships than you can actually take you know, over your party. Just, just take it over. If Patrick Brown actually represented something so very different from the old PCs, the ones who don't support him and would like to have their own party, Patrick Brown should really have you know, started, have started his own party. But, of course, that wouldn't be pragmatic. Christine Elliott, for her part, refers to the four successive losses and talking about how no one's tuning in to the PCs. Actually, I think they are tuning in, but given what we've just heard, They aren't hearing anything, you know. Fiscally conservative and socially compassionate mean absolutely nothing to most voters, particularly in light of the reality that they see so little evidence of either. And she talked about her own three qualities, experience outside of politics. I don't know that this is a qualification for anything political. In fact, it's usually a disqualifier if you want politicians to act in the general interest and not in someone's special interest. And then she says that her message is to get back to our roots. Again, we're fiscally responsible. And the reason is so that we can be socially compassionate. Now think about what she just said. She said, in other words, progressive conservatives want to save your money so that they can spend it. (laughs) That's it. There's nothing in it for the taxpayer. You just have other spending plans. And uh, she said, I have a seat, which, of course, she's not been seen in since her loss to Brown." The terms fiscally conservative and socially compassionate were used repeatedly by Eliot, but these terms mean nothing without referring to the thing about which one is being fiscally conservative or socially compassionate about. I didn't hear the words debt or deficit or spending or budgeting brought up in the whole discussion. What does fiscally conservative actually mean? It could mean raising taxes through the roof so that the government's spending will now occur under a balanced budget. Well, that's fiscally responsible. Lower taxes? For sure not. Less spending? For sure not. How do I know this? Because these fiscally responsible conservatives also want to be socially compassionate two more meaningless words in a single meaningless term, at least as written and uttered. In reality, governments are incapable of being either social or compassionate. There are no such entities as socials or compassionates. Normally, the word social refers to some group or a number of individuals that exceeds one, and compassionate is generally a feeling or an attitude. The consequences of the government's social compassion is the unspoken elephant in the room. A health system that is incapable of sustaining itself without billions and billions of compassionately confiscated tax dollars. And yet, things continue to, te- to deteriorate and even get worse with each successive year, not better, although they try and tell us different. All they're doing is rationing uh, more tightly. Every improvement is just an illusion created by some new method of rationing, as is the case both in healthcare and with Ontario's electricity issue. You know, that time of day billing you're getting, that's just a forced form of rationing. And that's what politicians do. In politics, social actually means people in monetary need, while compassionate refers to the money of those who earned it, which will be taken from them, very uncompassionately, without their consent to give to the social. Hence, socialism, which in turn means state ownership and or control of whatever or whoever is being socialized. Or fascism, if the state only intends to control, but not own a particular target of its fascism, like Hydro One. Since socialism, communism, and fascism are evil and destructive ideologies, and yes, they are ideologies, the non-ideologues attempt to hide their ideologies behind the word progressive. Put almost any word into the hand of such politicians, and it will always mean (laughs) pretty much the opposite of its dictionary definition. Individual rights become replaced by collective rights, and there's no such thing as a collective right, hence you end up with no rights. And then, of course, uh, Elliot's talking about building the big blue tent to make sure that everyone who shares our values is welcome to join. Well, you can't everyone, if they don't share your values, and obviously they're not welcome to join. But maybe they still let them join because apparently Patrick Brown doesn't share your values. <laughs> he, got, he took over. Uh, she says, my coalition includes former Premier Bill Davis, Mayor McCallion, Rob and Doug Ford. I think it's important we don't draw distinctions between who we want to be members of the party. We're all progressive conservatives and we all have a perspective and we have to get together under that blue tent. You know, that's, that's such a convoluted statement. It's difficult to reconcile the contradictions. If it is not necessary to draw a distinction in who joins a party and if you do not do so, how can you possibly justify that everybody's on the same progressive conservative page? Of course, everyone knows that they aren't. And we learned on a previous show how the word conservative has no objective meaning, literally, in the dictionary, with regard to what it stands for, nor does liberal, nor do any of the other words that we use daily in political discourse. Is it any wonder that as a discipline of governance, politics has devolved, not progressed in any way to the bottom of the barrel politics of buying votes with voters' own money? Now, You know, when I say the political conversation has not moved forward an inch, I know what I'm talking about. I've experienced it in a very conscious and documented way. Back in 1983, I penned an editorial for a paper called the London Metro Bulletin entitled, Bill Peterson and David Davis, Leaders of the Same Party. Of course, their real names were Bill Davis and David Peterson, but that was about the only difference you could find between them. And I wrote this, quote, Being a conservative liberal like David Peterson is the same as being a liberal conservative like Bill Davis. Both are really socialists in disguise. Bob Ray, on the other hand, isn't in disguise. Whether they're consciously aware of it or not, there's a single common denominator to all their philosophies that makes them the same. Their mutual contempt of capitalism and the principle of individual rights it represents. This is not an age of unbridled capitalism where wealth can be earned at the expense of one class or group in society. What we must achieve, we can only achieve together, said David Peterson, whose actions even today continue to burden Ontarians with the needless and outrageous expenditures of hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars on the Pan Am Games. When critics condemned the actions of Bill Davis for investing $650 tax dollars in a private company called Suncor as being socialist, Davis boasted, hey, we're not a doctrinaire party like the socialists, referring to the NDP, and anyone who would even apply the principles of another brand of conservatism to Ontario's Tories, said Davis, is hung up on a matter of theology. And so here we are today. We see the completely unchanged scenario of the PCs in 1983 being literally copied in both the ideologies of Christine Elliott and Patrick Brown, almost verbatim. Patrick Brown is saying the very thing that Bill Davis said back in 83. And in an ironic twist of logic, the party has indeed remained true to its subjectivist, intrinsicist roots. The great irony and lie is that Patrick Brown is selling this bland socialist sameness as something new and different. And it is. (laughs) to all the voters who were born after the Bill Davis years. In all those years, I have yet to see, or have seen very little evidence of this fiscal responsibility or social compassion coming out of the progressive conservative camp, except in the form of what Brown calls his liberal light socialism. And to continue from my 83 editorial, I concluded, you know, Ontarians have grown to believe That the ultimate struggle between capitalism and socialism is somehow being fought on party lines, but it's not the case. The eternal folly in being forced to vote for the lesser of three evils lies in the admission that one is still voting for evil. Unfortunately, our political alternatives will remain in short supply as long as politicians and the public continue to share and perpetuate their mutual ignorance of the concepts necessary to implement any real change in the direction of government. Until then will have socialism, socialism, and even more socialism, end quote. See? I told me so. Way back in 1983, when we hit the nail on the head as to why the conversation never advances. There's no traction on the political wheels of undefined, floating, abstract adjectives that come without nouns and words. You know, Ayn Rand once illustrated this principle by using arithmetic and numbers, and I'm paraphrasing from memory here, but the idea goes like this. Numbers represent abstract values, and these values are clearly defined and remain unchanged forever. That's why we can perform calculations and rely on accurate results every time and make progress. Now imagine if suddenly the number 8, for example, representing 8 units of measurements, no longer represented 8 of something, but could represent 5 or 2 and sometimes 3, depending who the person was that used it. Arithmetic itself would collapse as a discipline and progress could never be made. Calculated results would always be different, even when using the same numbers, because each person who used the numbers meant some different quantity of something than what the other person meant. Every calculation then becomes a completely meaningless exercise, which is exactly where we find ourselves in politics today, and for the same reason. You know, Patrick Brown says he's so proud of being a progressive conservative, etc., (laughs) etc., But He says, my approach to politics is to just be pragmatic. I dislike the way the party used to be run. I'd have to fit into some ideological compartment. What my basis is, if an idea makes sense for Ontario, I don't care if it comes from an NDP, liberal, social conservative, social libertarian. Notice he didn't mention Freedom Party. If it makes sense for Ontario, I'll support it. There's no monopoly on good ideas. I want to be a party that says it'll consider everything. No ideological compartments. You know, he just says nobody cares. Well, By telling us that he rejects ideology, Brown is proudly shouting that he doesn't stand for anything. Therefore, you know, we have no reason to fear him. He's not going to rock the boat. But we all know, and so does Brown, that this is simply not true. You know, his not being ideological, that is. You know who else said this? You heard this on the very show, just a, on our very show, just a few broadcasts ago, when William Gardner appeared as our guest. It was in an audio bite featuring Bloc Québécois leader Gilles Duceppe, who said during a past election, and I quote, "I'm telling you that the Bloc Québécois is never judging a proposal on the basis of who made it. When it's a good proposal made by the NDP or the Liberals or the Tories, if it's good, it's good. If it's not, it's not." End question or end quote. quote. Now, here's the million-dollar question. Just how does Gilles Duceppe or Patrick Brown or Kathleen Wynne or Paul McKeever actually determine whether a proposal is good or bad? Two more words that mean nothing without context. There's only one way, through their ideology, that set of values that as a politician you're supposed to be representing is there anyone with an earshot of my voice who would, even for a moment, entertain the notion that Gilles de Sepp isn't very strongly motivated by his ideology and objective, by his party's policies? Under his ideology, any proposal that would distance Quebec from the rest of Canada would be a good proposal. The extent to which he would deny that he is ideologically driven in this is a complete lie, because it's impossible not to be ideological in value determinations, even if you're not consciously aware of it. And the same unavoidable truth and principle applies to Patrick Brown. Ontarians have three parties in the legislature that are essentially all the same, just as was the case in 1983 and 84 with Bill Davis. Three parties that are liberal with our money, conservative with the truth, and who are progressively dismantling our democracy. It may be a new democracy for new Democrats, but a true democracy, it is no longer. It's a majority rule mob, and that's where we're heading. The only way to move the conversation forward is to insist on clear concepts in our conversation. Only then will our words gain the traction and the momentum to move that conversation forward, which will always be in a direction towards freedom and not away from it. And here at Just Right, we call it the right direction, and that's where we'll be headed again next week when we continue our journey towards freedom. Join us. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be. I was very practical growing up. Some kids have a race car bed. I had a Honda Civic bed. (laughs)